from the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is the word of our Lord. Well, good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Uh, great, great, great to be here. As Alan Michael said, my name is Josh, and uh, I served here. Uh, came, I came here about a, about a third of my life ago, so I'll let y'all figure that out and do the math, um, something like that. But so good to be back this morning. Uh, I'm excited to, to bring the word. Uh, Jerry has asked me to come and to, to teach on the topic, How to Stay Christian in College. I thought, you mean I get 30 minutes? That's all to talk about Man, so go ahead and find your, uh, your place in your Bibles, Exodus 33 and 34. I'm not going to preach the whole thing, I promise. Um, I do have a timer up here with me, so I know how long uh, <laughs> that I've been up here. Um, but uh, my, my wife, Carrie, is in the back uh, with our kids. We, we left here a handful of years ago, and we only had a couple. I can't remember. Now we have five. And uh, so somebody this morning said, your quiver is full. Uh, yes. Yes, my quiver is full, um, but, but we love them, and, and God has blessed us. I serve as the college pastor at Alliance Bible Fellowship in Boone, and so if uh, we have any students going to app, come tackle me and tell me. Uh, that way I can uh, try to find you over the next couple of weeks, and we can help you get plugged in. Um, one of the things I kept hearing as, uh, as Corey and Kristen were talking, and I do remember I met Corey when Corey was like nine over there in the, when the classroom used to be over there. It was crazy. So much has changed. Uh, and Kristen did help people with their chemistry, in fact. I actually remember that. Uh, but, um, but I love working with college students and seeing the spiritual transformation that takes place in that season of life as, uh, as God is just doing some amazing things in our hearts and lives. Um, a while back, our family came across uh, a book that someone uh, gave to us during the pandemic. You know, nobody was going anywhere or doing anything. And so read-alouds were suddenly all the rage, right? <laughs> you, you, know, you know what a read-aloud is? Somebody, you sit and somebody reads aloud. Anyhow, um, 
Apparently they're not a big deal anymore, but they were in our home. I was like, sit down, I'm reading, be quiet. Um, and I had this kid's version of a book that I'd wanted to read for a long time. Uh, it's called Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have heard of the book, at least heard of it, Pilgrim's Progress? Okay, a lot of folks in the room, good. Um, and so apparently I talk about Pilgrim's Progress a lot to my students because I found out about three weeks ago that one of them does this impersonation of me talking about Pilgrim's Progress. I'm like, man, whatever. Like, it's like only the, you know, number two most published book behind the Bible in the English language. Come on. And uh, so I caught him one day at the church and I said, hey, Brad, come here. I said, I heard that uh, you do a pretty good impersonation of me talking about Pilgrim's Progress. I said, let's hear it. You know, so he just like lets me have it. Um, I'm on like my 18th reading of Pilgrim's Progress. I'm like, whatever, man, whatever. This book's great. Changed my life. Um, God has used it in some amazing ways. Charles Spurgeon, my hero, said, if you pricked it, if you pricked it, it would bleed Bible. And that's just awesome. He said he read it over a hundred times in his life. I'm thinking if Spurgeon could give his time to that, like surely I can. So I read this kid's version. It was on a first and second grade level, real short chapters, summary, easy to follow. And we're going through the story. And at first I'm getting some eye rolls and I'm getting some like, you know, yawns and things. And then a few chapters in, they start to like sort of lean in, you know, and they're starting to listen like this. And I'd get to the end of a chapter and, uh, and they would Dad, keep reading, keep reading. And I was like, no, 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 no. We're going to hold it for next time. A little cliffhanger. But I got to the end of the book and I sat there in tears. I'm wiping tears away from my eyes and my kids are looking at me going, what is wrong with you? Have you lost your mind? As we neared the end of the book and what Christian was experiencing, if you haven't read it, I won't spoil the story for you, but I'll give you just the overview because it's going to help some of what I'm talking about this morning make sense in the text. In the book Pilgrim's Progress, there's a man named Christian who's living in the city of destruction. He's living in the city of destruction when he comes upon this book that talks about the judgment to come on the city in which he is living. And so he realizes this book also talks about another city called the celestial city, the heavenly city. And that celestial city is ruled by a good and loving king. And the more Christian keeps reading, it keeps him up at night and he's thinking about his situation and his city and his family. And the only thing he wants to do is to flee the city that he's living in, the city of destruction, and get to the celestial city where he can lay eyes on the king. The whole time that's what he begins to think about is seeing this good and gracious king. And so all throughout his journeys, he sometimes wanders off the path, the highway of holiness. He wanders away into some difficult and dark places. And he thinks it's all over for him. And he loses his way, but there's this one single desire that captivates Christian's attention. It is to get to the city so he can see the king. He wants to lay eyes on the king. And the story captivated me because I I largely grew up in church. But up until about a year and a half ago, even even my time in ministry, up until about a year and a half ago, I don't know that I would say the single desire of my life was not perfectly but consistently to see the king. If I thought about heaven or talked about heaven with someone else, you know, it was always no more pain and no more sadness and no more sorrow. And those things are true. Revelation talks about that. But all of a sudden, because of this work that that, uh, Bunyan wrote called Pilgrim's Progress, the, the attention and the affections that I have for this world 
they, they just shifted out of the way. And, and like the, the single thing on my radar was, I want to get to this city. I want to see the king. I, I, I want to wrap my arms around him if I can. And I, and I want to just hear him tell me about his goodness and his glory. Now you say, wait a minute, you're preaching on staying Christian in college. Come back to us. Why would I start a message on staying Christian in college with a story from a 400-year-old book? Because having been a college student and now being a college pastor, I I believe, I firmly believe that the central truth of that 400-year-old book is the only way that I know to tell you how to stay Christian in college. I can give you tons of tips and tricks and I love the things that they shared this morning and they are absolutely true. I stand behind every single one of them. But here's the reality. I can give you a bunch of life hacks or faith hacks for how you can navigate the choppy waters of your transition to college. But to be honest with you, if you don't have a foundational bedrock anchored in love and desire for God, if you don't desire him to be your ultimate fulfillment and him to be your ultimate satisfaction and your joy, those things will last about as long as your first semester meal card money. They will. Because you'll find a a million other things on your college campus to pull you away from God. So let me say it like this this morning. The way that you stay Christian in college, this message I think is for all of us in this place, including myself. The way you stay Christian in college is the same way you stay Christian in your 30s when you're raising kids, in your 50s when you're planning for retirement, and in your 70s, 80s, and 90s when you're facing death right in the face. God must be your single desire. God must be your ultimate delight. He must be your joy. He must be your desire. Otherwise, you're going to fall away from seeking him. So let's turn to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, chapter 33 and 34. I'll give you just a real quick summary. If you've read it before, you'll know at this point in the book, Moses is up on the mountain with God again. Because he went up before to get the, the commandments, the law, and, and he was told, Moses said, uh, God said, I'll supply the tablets for you this time. So Moses goes up and he gets the tablets. When he comes back down, though, he finds Israel around the golden calf in Exodus 32, I believe. And he finds them in idol, idol worship, and he becomes disgusted, and he throws the tablets, and they break. So this time, God says, you bring the tablets. <laughs> you bring the tablets. Meet me on the mountain. And so Moses goes up on the mountain and has this meeting with God. And God tells him at this moment, it's time for you to leave Sinai. I would make a direct application in a whole lot smaller way. It's time for a number of you in this room to leave home. It's time for moms and dads and grandparents to let go, to watch and you see that the person you have raised launch off into a major transition of life. It's a monumental task. Coming back to the biblical story, Moses feels the size of the task before him and he makes a request of God that Charles Spurgeon calls the greatest petition that any man has ever asked of God. In Exodus 33, 18, he says, please show me your glory. Show me your glory. Say, why did Moses ask that? Like surely he could have asked for a course on leadership, (laughs) right? He's gonna need it. He wants to see more of God. Why? 
Because if you follow Moses' story, he met God at the burning bush and God revealed himself to Moses. He saw his awesome power on the mountain as God spoke to him a number of times. He watched as God parted the Red Sea and Moses led the people through and the east wind held back the waters all night long. Moses witnessed these things. He saw the power of God. He saw the manna come down. He saw the water come out of the rock. He had witnessed all these things and he knows this. Nothing else will sustain me. Nothing else is going to satisfy me in here. All I need is what I find in God. David says in Psalm 27, 4, I remember Jerry preaching on this years ago and I wrote my margin of my Bible. What is my one thing? David says, one thing I ask from the Lord. This only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I want to be in your presence is what that means. He says to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. When you think about God, does the word beautiful come to your mind? When you think about all the attributes of who God is and you, and you get lost in who he says about, he is about himself in the word of God, do you think, man, God is more beautiful He is more majestic. He is more awesome. He is more awe-inspiring than anything else in this world. It doesn't sound to me like Moses or David went off to college and they said, okay, God, you can have an hour on Sunday, but after that, the rest of the week's mine. Like, they're not trying to strike that deal with God. These are guys who have beheld his power in his presence. And what do they want? More of the same thing. So God tells him, he says, no man may see my face and live. Why? Because we're sinful creatures. And the glory of God would overwhelm and obliterate any sinful thing in his presence. And so he says, you cannot see my face and live. And so he scoops Moses up and he tucks him back in a rock and he's gonna pass by him and he's gonna let Moses look literally in Hebrew on his back parts is what the text says. You can look on my back parts, you cannot see my face. But there's something interesting. There's something interesting God does. When he passes by Moses, what does he do with his hand? Not literally, but anthropomorphically. What does he do? He covers him. I was thinking this week, I thought, you know, there's something there. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, And they fell away from God and they ran from the Lord and there was this gap of distance they had not not had before. What did God do? God stepped in. God initiated this action on their behalf and something had to die and God covered them. He covered them with the skin of an animal that was a substitute sacrifice. What did he do with Moses right here? He passes by him, but he covers Moses. The question is, who is he covering Moses from? There's no one else on the mountain. He's covering Moses from himself because he knows that his glory, the wrath of God, would obliterate and cover and destroy Moses on the spot if he doesn't cover him. And what did Jesus do for us when he went to the cross? His blood shed on that cross covers you and I. So that when the Father looks at you, if you're under the blood of Jesus, you are not destroyed. You are not cast off. You are covered. I think God's doing something here in this text. 
It's interesting though, because it turns out that the backside of God, just the back parts of God was, was bright enough and brilliant enough to leave a glow on Moses' face that he had to wear a veil for a time so that the Israelites could even come near to him. R.C. Sproul says, if people are terrified by the sight of the reflected glory of the back parts of God, how can anyone stand to gaze directly into his holy face? Yet, Sproul says, the final goal of every Christian is to be allowed to see what was denied to Moses. We want to see him face to face. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 says that we will behold him in all of his divine fullness when we become like he is, when we are glorified in heaven. This is what theologians call the beatific vision, like beatitude, blessed. The blessed vision to see the face of God. There is nothing more captivating in this world that will enrapture your soul than to see who God is in his word and then begin to desire that and to fix your eyes, as Hebrews tells us, on Christ who ran that race for us so that we will see him one day. Let's go to the text, Exodus 34. Moses wants to see God and his glory. But God says, I have something to say to you. You're not gonna see it, you're gonna hear it. And in verses six and seven that we're gonna cover, God preaches a sermon on the perfection of his holy nature. He does not cover every facet of who he is. But he holds out his heart, who he is in his heart to Moses. In verse six, he begins by repeating his name twice. In many of your English Bibles, it will show up in small capital letters. The Lord, the Lord. This is the sacred name of God that is tied to his covenant with his people. Not his contract, because we know Israel did not hold up to their end of any bargain almost ever, right? The same thing with you and I. But this is the name that is tied to the covenant that God has with his people. Yahweh, Jehovah. It's called the Tetragrammaton, four letters, Y-H-W-H. The vowels are supplied so we can pronounce it. But interestingly, the Jews were so, they so revered this name so highly that they would not even attempt to bring it to their lips. The Jews would not even attempt to pronounce this sacred and holy name of God. In fact, many centuries later, when the Jewish scribes were copying the Old Testament text and they would get to Yahweh, you know what they would do? They would get up from their desk. They would leave their work. They would go to their, their place where they could take a bath. They would take off their garments and they would take a ceremonial bath to cleanse themselves from any impurity and any defilement simply because they ran across the name of God as they were copying it. There was a reverence for God in their hearts. We find this self-description on the lips of David, Joel, and Jonah as they are talking about the goodness of God. So let's look at each one of these attributes here briefly together. The first one that we find in verse six is that God is merciful. Some translations say compassionate. He is merciful and he is compassionate. This simply means he cares for his children. He is sympathetic towards them in their weakness. He knows what we are made of. I think uh, Dane Ortland in the book, Gentle and Lowly, really helps us see this in the heart of Christ, that he is drawn toward us in our moment of weakness. 
in our sin, in our pain, in our, in our confusion. He's drawn toward us like a father who is drawn to their child's cry. I had something happen this week that reminded me, maybe because I was studying this text, but uh, our little girl, Josie, I think she's here this morning. Josie was running on the treadmill and she never does that. I don't know why she was on the treadmill that day, but she jumps on the treadmill and she turns it on and maybe she turned the speed up as fast as she could go, you know, to see how fast she could run. And she's trucking along when the treadmill characteristically shoots her off the back, you know, and she hits the ground. And a treadmill, you know, she, she didn't have the little stop thing. She told me later, I should have left that little safety thing in there. Yeah, that would have been a good idea. So the belt keeps going, but the carpet doesn't move. So she shoots off the back, hits the carpet, and the belt is just going and just tears her little arm and leg all up. Terrible, terrible, terrible spot. And I'm trying to find every story in the history of my child. I was hurt like this, and I was, but I'm like, I don't know if I've had anything like that. One night this past week, Carrie and I are having a conversation in the back of the house, and I will tell you, my wife will tell you, I, 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 don't, I do not have the spiritual gift of mercy or compassion. I am not the most compassionate person in the world, to be fair. But we're having this conversation, and, and I hear Josie begin to cry out. And the, the fatherly heart that God has given to me for my children, I looked at her and I said, hey, this conversation, if you're okay, like, it can wait. We, it's not time sensitive. I said, I don't want her to feel abandoned right now in her pain because she was really hurting. And I go in the room and I kneel down beside her and we sort of attempt to doctor her, although I have no doctoring skills. And, you know, we pet her and talk to her and try to pray with her. Psalm 103 says that our heavenly father is drawn to us like a father shows compassion to his children. The Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. To those who fear him, this is how he thinks about you. This is how he longs for you. This is how he wants to draw near to you. He is merciful and compassionate, but he's also gracious. The word grace simply means a gift. To be gracious means you give something to someone far better than what they have earned and they deserve. We understand what this means, don't we? We understand what grace is. Let me give you a real helpful analogy that hopefully will not happen to any college student in this room this week. But let's say you're trekking off to school this week or this semester, and you're in the car and you're going along and you're just singing all these praise tunes here because that's what you need to have on your radio. And all of a sudden you look up and there's some blue lights behind you and you go, oh, no. And the officer pulls you over and you are going... As one of my students told me a couple of weeks ago, 89 in a 65. I won't say his name in case he hears it, but I looked at him, I said, have you lost your John Brown mind? Let's say you're going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. Officer pulls you over and the officer writes you out a ticket and hands it to you. What do we call that? Justice. Why? You broke the law. That's what you earned. That's what you deserve. You deserved that ticket. And so you go to court and you have to deal with it, right? That's part of it. But if that officer comes up and the officer says, listen, you, you need to slow down. And that officer just gives you down the road. But they say, I'm not going to give you a ticket today, but you need to slow down. What would we call that? Mercy. Mercy. You were given mercy. 
right? You, were, you, you deserved it, but you didn't get what you had coming to you. But let's say that same officer comes up and reaches in his back pocket, and you think, here comes the ticket book, and the wallet comes out. And the officer tells you you deserve a ticket, I'm not going to give you one, and hands you a $100 bill and says, here, maybe this will cover the gas to school for you this week. And you're like, what? What just happened? Who are you? Who am I? What just happened? What are we doing? What do we call that? Grace. Grace. Lavish, lavish grace. You deserve the penalty, and in its place you were given a blessing. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, the wages of our sin is what? Death. What are wages? What you earn. What you deserve. What I deserve. What I've earned. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's grace. God is a gracious, gift-giving God. But third, he is also slow to anger. It doesn't say he says no to anger. Some people today want to say, I don't like this concept of an angry God. You don't get to pick. Sorry. He's not no to anger. He is slow to anger. Because think about this. If something terrible or wicked happened, like something really unjust, something terrible happened in your life, if the people around you did not get angry, you would wonder, what's wrong with you? If God does not get angry at sin, he stops being God. He must get angry at sin. He must punish sin. That's why there's a day coming, it says in Hebrews 9, that it is appointed to every man to die once and then to face the judgment. He must punish sin because he's a good and righteous and just God, but he's slow to anger. He doesn't have a microwave kind of anger. You know, you push the button and thing takes off. He has a crock pot kind of anger. Because on his divine timetable, as he's waiting for that appointed day, it's low and slow, but it's coming. It's coming for all those who do not repent and turn to faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I love the older translations, what they call it. If anybody has an older translation, it says the word long-suffering. That's a good word, isn't it? He suffers long with our falterings. He suffers long with our failings. He is patient with you. He is patient with me. Is anybody else glad for that this morning? Man, I am. Jeez. Fourth, he is abounding in steadfast love. Notice that first word I said. He's abounding over the boundaries, exceeding the boundaries with this thing the Hebrew calls chesed. It's, a, it's kind of a fun word to say. It's kind of like stuck in here, you know, chesed. <laughs> it means loving kindness, faithfulness, steadfast, loyal love for his people. It specifically refers to this covenant that God has with his people. He's not going to break his promise. He's not going to walk away. When God makes a promise, when he writes a check to you in the scripture as his people, you can go straight to the bank. Because Philippians 4.19 tells us that he has all the resources in his son Christ to back up those checks that he writes. That's my translation. <laughs> Fifth, in verse seven, he repeats the one we just mentioned on chesed, but he repeats it in a different way. Instead of talking about the kind of love, the quality of that love, now he's talking about the vast length of his love. Now he's talking about the quantity of love. 
Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter three. Paul says to the Ephesians, I want you to know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. I want you to understand how much he loves you. Not because of anything you've done to earn, but because of who, this is his heart. This is who God is. On your best day and on your worst day, you don't move him one iota on the needle. Psalm 136 tells us 26 times, I didn't study this, but I bet it's probably an acrostic, 26 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and it says his love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. To thousands and generations, that's who he is. Number six tells us God is forgiving. These last two are interesting because it juxtaposes two things that you think, well, they can't simultaneously exist, right? They're oil and water, right? No. God is forgiving. The Hebrew word here means to lift up and to carry away. That's what God does for us in our sin. He lifts our sin off of our shoulders and he carries it away. You say, to where? If he's just, he's got to carry it away to somewhere, right? He's got to place it on someone, right? Isaiah 53 talks about a suffering servant. One who would be pierced for our transgressions. Crucifixion wasn't even invented when Isaiah was written. And it's prophesying one who would be pierced for our transgressions and he would be crushed for our sins. It was the will of the Father, his good pleasure to crush his son so that you could be forgiven because that's who God is. His justice was met in the substitutionary death of Christ for sinners. I heard the story of a man recently. Uh, I, I won't give too many details just to protect his identity. It was a Chinese man coming out of communist China. Never heard about, never heard about this God we're talking about this morning. And as somebody shared the gospel with him, he listened, wrapped with attention. And at the very end, they offered salvation to them. They said, they said, would you like to receive Jesus Christ as your savior? And here's what he said. He said, I would love to receive Jesus Christ as my savior if he will have me. What an attitude. What a sense of submission and reverence to the holiness of who Jesus is. A transcendent big picture of who God is that so swallows up our little bitty self that you don't become important, but you become important in light of who God is and his majesty. This morning, I'm trying to set God in front of you, whether you're a college student or whether you have a, a, a terminal diagnosis. I'm trying to set God in front of you from this scripture to show you that there is nothing else in this world that compares to who God is. I believe that. I believe that. And I believe that if any person in this room grabs onto a picture of who God is and you get one little taste, what do you want? You don't want the cheap plastic imitation junk of this world. You want more of him because there's nothing else that tastes that good. What do the Psalms say? Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's an invitation to come and sample. When you go to an ice cream shop, what do you want to do? You know what you're going to buy. You know what you love. But you walk in and you go, can I sample this and this and this? And if there's nobody behind you, you keep going. And they roll their eyes and you use up all their little sample spoons. The Psalms are inviting you to taste and see. 
But too many of us, sadly, as John Piper says, are so full and so bloated from snacking on the things of this world that we don't have an appetite for God. I'm not trying to lay anything on you that's too heavy. I'm dealing with what God has shown me. I'm I'm showing you, I spent my college years, I didn't get into any wild trouble, but man, I just wanted to hang out with with, with friends and I had a great group of Christian friends, praise God. But I wanted to do that and play basketball and I wanted to hang out with my new girlfriend and all these things were just ultimate in my life. And God was somewhere down that list and he was patient with me. The last thing, he is just. Now wait a minute, he's forgiving, but he's just. Again, he always does what is right. He will always punish sin. But he punishes sin by placing it on Christ so that we can be freely forgiven. Again, some people don't like this idea that God punishes sin, that he's just. Would you want a God that turned his head when sin was committed, that just didn't punish sin, that shrugged it off? Some people today want that. They want a good and loving God that is just always a a benevolent grandfather just doling out gifts. I I don't know how else to say it, but this this ain't a buffet. (laughs) You don't get to pick and choose. And even if you did, if you tried to rewrite the story of the scripture and you tried to rebuild God into who you think he's going to be, you know what you're going to do, every one of us in this room, myself included, you're going to build a God made in your own image. You're gonna try to shape him to look like you because what you think, what I think, is what we like. We don't get that choice. Seven attributes of sheer perfection. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. He doesn't even talk about his omnipotence and his, uh, his omnipresence. He doesn't even talk about all these other things. Just seven attributes of sheer perfection. And what does Moses do? He bows his head. He can't even bring himself to raise his head and look at what God has just shown him. The back parts of God. I love Luke chapter 18 in the New Testament. I wrote a paper on this in college. The, the tax collector stands far off from God. And what does he do? He beats his chest as a sign of sorrow for sin. And he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. What a great prayer. I don't deserve anything. Just please give me your mercy. See, here's the very thing that floors me about the Christian gospel. And this is the thing that separates it. If you miss everything else I said, tune in. This is the thing that separates the Christian gospel from every other world religion out there that exists. All the other world religions out there have a system of how you climb the mountain to get to God through your goodness. You have to go up to him because he's not moving whoever that God is. But the Christian gospel tells us that you can't climb that mountain. And I'm coming down to you. And you're not going to walk up side by side as we hold hands together, kind of hunky-dory buddies The Bible says we're dead in our sin. We're laying at the foot of God's holy mountain. And what does he do? Jesus came down. Man, I get excited about that. He came down. He scooped you up and he carried you up that mountain. And he died on the cross on Calvary for you and I. The message of the gospel is this. God came down to Moses to give him the law. Christ came down to us to fulfill it. That's that's the Bible right there. God made everything. We messed it all up. God gave a law. Jesus fulfilled it. And then what are you going to do? 
Are you really going to choose something else that is going to hold you over for about 30 minutes? Do you want to snack on the stuff of the world when God is this good? I don't. Not anymore. I did, but I don't. Not long ago, someone showed a, a picture. Our pastor up in Boone showed a picture. I'm afraid to look at it. It's on the TV in the back, but I'm afraid to look at it. Every time I look at this picture and I see her face, I know it's just an artist's rendition. It's, it's a grain of sand on the beach of what we're going to experience. But let me ask you, college students, what else are you going to find on your college campus that can touch that? I can't wait. I can't wait to get there and to hear him say to me, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest that is prepared for you. have been faithful in a few things. Go enjoy it. I, I, can't, I can't offer you anything else bigger than that. Let me move away from the students for just a second and ask other folks in the room, how would God turn around your marriage? How would God turn around your marriage? How would he change the culture of your workplace? How would he give you a new vision for retirement so that you're not collecting seashells and lowering your handicap, as Piper says? How would he help you resolve a long-standing conflict with someone? Or how might he help you face the loneliness that's nagging you on the inside if every day you woke up and you said, God, please, today show me. Let me see as much of you as I can handle because there's nothing else that's gonna touch. That's what Moses is asking right here. So those of you in the room who are not trekking off to school next week or the week after, you say, well, what can I do? I'm not, I'm, college is three decades in the past for me. <laughs> I'm getting there fast. There's a whole lot more gray here than there was when I worked here. What do I do? Here's what I think you do. I think you pray I think you believe, as John Wesley said, you, you pray, you work like it all depends on you, and you trust in faith like it all depends on God. You pray for the affections and the attention of that student in your life, the one you've sat next to for five or six years now in worship. You pray for their attentions and their affection that they would not be drawn to the things of this world. You pray Romans 12 and verse two over them that they wouldn't be conformed, squished into the mold of this world, but they would be transformed by what? The renewing of their mind so that they would be able to discern the will of God. What a prayer. What if you wrote a note once a week, once a month to that student that you're praying for and you said, here's how I'm praying for you and you shared that with them. What, you have no idea what that might do for them in the second semester of their sophomore year or the victory lap when they're in year five of their college time. Go visit them. Surprise them. <laughs> That'd be fun. When they're back home, have them in your town. And just sit and have them in your home and just, and just ask all kinds of questions. How are you doing? What are you learning? 
What's most exciting? Be a curious learner. Do you know how much a student would lean into somebody? We have a mentor program in our college ministry, and some of our best and most successful mentors are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, and the students eat it up. Why? Because those 80-year-olds lean in with the posture of a curious learner, and they say, tell me, help me understand. What are you seeing God do in your life? You can have a major part in the lives of the college students at this church. Now, I know some of you this morning are disappointed. Some of you list makers in here are terribly disappointed that I did not come with about 18, you know, bullet points and tell you how to stay Christian in college. I I just, the Bible doesn't talk about college, so doing the best I can here. (laughs) But I'm going to give you a few things. I think they're going to pull it up on the screen For you list makers in the room, and it's stuff that you guys just heard Corey and Kristen say. I'll run down them real fast, and then we'll get ready to close in a moment. The first one is find a solid biblical church that expressly teaches the word of God, not passing fads, not cultural ideas, not social justice stuff that that, that, that removes the gospel from the center, and then commit to being there. Don't say, well, I'll come when I get up. Be there. Commit yourself to that, to that church. Maybe even consider for a period of time, if you're going to be there for four years, maybe consider moving your membership there for a period of time. You can move it back. Discover your spiritual gift and give to that body. You are not just hanging out in an airport between planes waiting for somebody else to pick you up called a job. You're a believer. You're a part of the body. You got a job to do. I'm going to move. Number two, seek out a godly mentor to walk alongside you. Years of life and gray hair can teach you a ton. Number three, do not isolate. Right, Corey? Do not isolate. So many students get to a college campus and their eyes get that big and they back up into their dorm room and they shut the door and they're like, I see scary people. (laughs) I don't know what to do. Where do I go? Find a community of believing Christians at a campus ministry like Crew, InterVarsity, RUF. Ours is a great one, I think, I think, in Boone at App called College Connection. Do not isolate. Next one, set parameters on your screen time. This is a big one. Set parameters and guards against things like pornography. Set parameters on your screen time. I had a student this past year look at, look at me. We're talking about this. And I said, how much time are you spending on social media? We're not even talking about email. He's not paying bills online. He's not doing anything of any real value. I'm not going to say his name. I said, how much time you spend? And he pulls up his phone. You know, you can like check your, your stuff. And he goes, like eight and a half hours. You're spending eight and a half hours on. I said, how's that working out for you? And he goes, not real good. I didn't think so. He says, I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to make friends and I'm finding like acceptance kind of a hard thing and I'm just constantly anxious, you know. And I'm like, well, why are you on it? Well, I, I kind of got like this FOMO thing, you know. I'm like, I'm afraid I'm gonna miss out. I'm like, have you ever seen an 80-year-old that has FOMO? No. They're living fiercely in the present. They're not watching life happen on a screen. Please set parameters on your screen time. Last one, Kristen talked about this. Intentionally carve out time every day to spend time with that God we just talked about. If he's that great and good and glorious, then by gracious, shouldn't we all want to spend time with him? 
Develop a rhythm of intentional time with God. One of the greatest words I've ever heard anybody tell me about college life is the word rhythms. Healthy sleep rhythms, healthy diet rhythms, healthy, healthy friendship rhythms, healthy rhythms of spending time in the word, healthy rhythms of prayer, healthy rhythms of exercise. Develop a good spiritual rhythm for spending time with the Lord. So I'm gonna close in prayer in just a second, but we have some questions I think on the screen. If you wanna pull out your phone and just snap a picture of these right quick, and then instead of talking about them now, like our college students talk about them after the message on Sunday nights, Take this set of questions, and you may have some that are infinitely better than mine, but take this set of questions and talk about these things with a friend, with a mom, dad, grandparent, mentor, figure, neighbor. Talk through these things together this coming week. Ask the Lord to search your heart as you think about heading off to school. Let me pray, and I'll close it up. Father, we are greatly um, just pleased and amazed that we get to be in your presence. They get to come and gather with your people. They get to read your word out loud and, and hear it. And God, you speak to us about who you are and what you've done. And Lord, you help us to fall more in love with your heart. God, I pray for these students that are going to be heading off, some tomorrow, some through the rest of the week. They're going to be taken off to all, all manner of places. I pray like like Christian, that they would be guided by one desire. Like David, one thing alone do I seek, to be in your presence, to worship you, to see your face. I pray, God, that everything else would taste terrible in their mouths. I pray that when they, when they do, they're, they're going to struggle inevitably. It's just a part of that season of life. But as these students struggle, I pray, I pray they just walk away and... That was horrible. And they would remember this text, not even my words, but they would remember that God, you're a God who is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving and just. And you are for them. Drill that down into the very fiber of who they are. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So I didn't do this in the first service because there weren't a ton of college students um, there with us, but I have a couple of books that I wanna give away. So uh, instead of doing some kind of crazy creative thing, if, you, uh, if, if, you want, if you're a college student, if you're heading off to school, if you are getting ready to uh, go to grad school, it doesn't matter, 18 to 25, something like that. If you want a book, I have two. If we have three people, you're gonna have to play paper, rock, scissors for it and set it like adults. So just come see me at the end.